comes from Matthew 5, 21 to 26. <clears throat> you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out, of, out until you have paid the last penny. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, uh, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the sheer honor it is to look at this text. Uh, we confess that we come to this text with apprehension and fear and trembling. So, Lord, I ask that you take what is said here and multiply it in our hearts and our minds, that we would be walking away from here glorifying you for your son's work on the cross. In your name I pray, amen. Now, a few weeks ago before Christmas, uh, my name is Heath, I'm part of the team at East Van. I wanna bring you greetings uh, from East Van. Um, it's been a joy to be there, and it's been many months since I've seen you. Um, and so when Brett and I were talking about his shoulder surgery, and, and he, he knew that last week I was teaching an evangelism class at a Bible school in the interior, he said, would you be okay if you took the Sunday? I'm like, yeah, no problem. I can roll with that. Um, and then, you know, Tuesday happened. I got sick. So here I'm trying to teach evangelism with like I've got, you know, Kleenexes shoved up my nose. And, and so today I'm actually feeling remarkably well considering. So today's sermon is brought to you by NyQuil, Tylenol Cold and Flu, and Fisherman's Friend. Our text this morning... The one that's just read brings us uh, some difficulties, doesn't it? Before we go any further, let's just acknowledge the weight of this text. I would, I would venture a guess that this, if we actually truly paid attention and we're listening, um, we stop to consider the implications, we, we're actually scared of this text. Jesus linking anger and murder, that's something we just kind of want to take a distance, you know, distance ourselves from. We subconsciously pretend it doesn't exist and we actly, actively try to suppress its rule in our lives. We feel justified and we feel vindicated in our anger. We almost feel comfortable in our anger. It's like a sweater, you know, that you put on and it fits nice. I don't usually fit sweaters nice, but anger is like a sweater that fits. But this text, it pulls at the seams and it unravels us. Now, if you're thinking I'm kidding or I'm overstating the issue, let me ask you a couple of questions. How many of you drive a car? How many of you commute to work on a cycle, bicycle? Anybody that knows me knows one thing. It says he cannot tell anything or explain anything unless he tells it in a story. So welcome to Storytime with Heath. Let me set the stage for you. I live on a corner lot on, on the corner of Victoria and Pender a block off of Hastings. 
And the cross street, Pender, is radically all the day used by cyclists going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Well, Victoria, as you can tell, is used by commuter traffic as vehicles. Now, I don't know whether it's like repressed adult FOMO, you know, fear of missing out, or whether it's just because I'm oddly extroverted. But I've got one of those 100-year-old houses that's got a really big porch. And for fun, for kicks and giggles, I have my coffee out there, and I'm reading some theological tome, and I'm just like eating it up, drinking the coffee, and watching everything happen around me. It's really cool. I've had questions like, what are you doing up there? Oh, I'm studying. Anyway, I digress. So probably in the only day of sunshine we had in the past two months, I was out there on the porch enjoying my coffee. And I'm, you know, trying to sort out some Greek word, and I hear the screeching of tires, and the longest string of expletives I've ever heard put together in one sentence before in my life. Intrigued, I looked up, and I see this, this cyclist. You know how, how cyclists are. I, I am not one, as you can tell. Cyclists, they're geared up in like spandex from head to toe. Even their helmets are spandex. And they're, and they're whipping through. And this guy is whipping through the intersection. And this, and this, this as a bearded guy who looks more like me in his Ford F-150 He's got his arm out the window, and he's screaming and yelling. And the cyclist just kind of casually gives him this middle finger salute as he wa- rolls by. Now, this would be funny if it didn't happen almost every day. This has ceased to be funny to me. Because this, I call it my, it's a Vancouver caricature. Now, I'm sure most of us here this morning have been on either side of this equation. Either we have been the perpetrator of unadulterated curse words coming out of the car as you're driving, probably with your Jesus fish on the back of your car, or you've been the recipient, somebody who you've inadvertently cut off, and you are the recipient of these violent words. Anger is a real thing. There's a reason why we have a term called road rage. I have a One of my childhood friends currently, he's actually dealing with an altercation of road rage that ended badly in death. Anger leads to death. It has serious, serious consequences. Now, I won't show or ask for a show of hands of how many people this morning... Actually, this has really worked in my favor. I want to ask for a show of hands of how many people driving here this morning in the snow cursed somebody as they cut you off and got slush all over your brand new washed car. Now, I have a hot button when it comes to driving. As I said, I live on a busy street, and usually there's adequate parking in front of my house. So one of my biggest, like it's a big glowing hot button, is if I'm driving my car and I pull up, and I go to, par- I got my signal lights on, and I'm ready to parallel park, and I start to back in, and the village idiot behind me doesn't see that I'm parallel parking, or he just doesn't care, and he swings around and tries to pass me. I lose my stuff. It's like, come on, man, it's disrespectful. The other thing that possibly is even worse is when you're driving in traffic, right, and you're, and you're in two lanes, and you're in the left lane, and you're rocking it out, and you come to a stop at a stoplight, and the guy in front of you, yeah, all of a sudden, what does he do? Ah, when the light turns red, he turns on his left signal, and I'm losing my mind. How many of you can relate? I'm sure all of us have hot button issues. See, we feel justified in our anger, don't we? We feel righteous because I am the one that's been wronged. See, our lack of self-control in the driver's seat 
illustrates Jesus here perfectly in this text. Man, I, I am ashamed that the fact that I, the lips that I use to worship and glorify God are the same ones I curse cyclists. This morning, we're giving a wonderful, given a wonderful opportunity to pause and consider the stark reality that Jesus presents to us, that our anger breathes out murderous threats. So before we're tempted to fall headlong into a whole scenario of what if, and what about this, what about this, or ah, I'm, I, but I'm vindicated in my anger, let's just stop and feel the weight of the text and see what Jesus is saying here so that we can understand how serious our anger is, our fury. So our outline this morning will be as such. The point number one will be what has been said. Point number two is what does Jesus say? And the last one is the implications of what is said. Now, it's January 12th, and uh, if you have been able to, you know, count to 12, you know, with your hands and you've maybe taken a sock off, you know that we've been 12 weeks out of the Sermon on the Mount. So before we deal with this particular text, which we would anger, you know, we need to actually set this text in context again and remind us where we've been at. Now, many of us watch TV, and I'm sure that, you know, you've binge-watched one season over Christmas, and yet now you're left waiting for the next season. So a year and a half will roll by, and then you start watching season number two, episode one, and you'll go, what is going on here? I don't remember anything. So, previously on Sermon on the Mount. So we've rolled out of the gate in September, and we've looked at the Beatitudes, these macarisms, these blessed R statements, and the happy, flourishing, and in right relationships with God and man. We, we've looked at, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We were confronted by these claims of Jesus and, and his assertion that true happiness, true joy, being blessed, true flourishing, was one that was found in his narrative here, in Jesus' kingdom, accomplished by him for our behalf. So if that's true, if we come to him poor in spirit and broken, we can actually be changed and have our vertical relationship with Jesus restored and that result in horizontal reconciliation, restoration with those around us. So if that's true, then, we also looked at, yeah, because of that, we will be persecuted. For Jesus' namesake, we will be persecuted because his kingdom, his narrative is different than the narrative of the world. In fact, it's upside down. And because of his kingdom, we will be hated for it. Now, Jesus then likens to the, us to, to two different metaphors, salt and light. Salt being active at change agents. You know, it, it changes everything that it touches. I like to cure meat. You throw something in a bag with some salt, and it changes in a week. We are to be like that to those around us. Also, Jesus likens us to light, that we actually are a life-giving force that affects those who are in darkness. Now, because we're going to pretend this is a Christopher Nolan film and go from backwards to forwards, next week, uh, Daryl will look at the law and what Jesus has to say about the law, that he is the fulfillment of the law. And so today we come to our text, and we enter a whole new kind of episode in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we have a different section here, and scholars often refer to this as the sixth antithesis. Jesus, expanding on his assertion of the fulfillment of the law, he says that uh, the heart of the law... 
uh, he rather, he gives us case studies how the heart of the law is supposed to be filled out. The first of these antithesis is our text this morning. Now, each one of these case studies, is, it goes a little bit like this. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, it's not, you know, thou shalt not murder, and then, you know, I say to you, kill indiscriminately. That's not how these, these work. It's like, you have heard it said, and I say to you. Now, in each of these statements, Jesus addresses a portion of the law, either from the, the Ten Commandments or the book of Leviticus, and he states how they've been interpreted and followed by others. Jesus states that the heart of each command and, and ramps up in the scope and the application of it to the point where it seems like, wow, that's impossible. This formula holds true for all six of these antitheses. Jesus actually gives us a new set of lenses to look at the law that is through him. Now, one thing that must be crystal clear here, that, that must be articulated and stated right at the front here, we need to have an understanding of this before we look at all six of these. Jesus doesn't just reinterpret the law. He's not one in a line of interpretive voices. He inserts himself directly into the law as the author, as the fulfillment, and therefore his voice is superior, his voice is true, and his voice is ultimately authoritative. It's his voice that we are listening to, Timothy tells us. It is his voice we are to understand and if we are to live. This is why the scribes and the Pharisees hated him. They tried to suppress his voice, they tried to suppress, suppress his message, and his followers. So with that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus is going all the way back to Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, and he gives us the Sixth Commandment. He says, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. <coughs> Excuse me. My voice sounds a little bit like a frog being beaten by a bagpipe. So I apologize. I wish I had an English accent because it probably would come off a lot clearer to you, but that's okay. See, murder was a capital offense. If you killed someone, yeah, punishment was death, period, right? You know, it's not rocket science to, to figure this one out. Now, depending on your biblical understanding of history, you know, roughly 400, 1,400 years had passed. Since the time that this law was given to the time where Jesus stands there and, and, and speaks it to these people. Over the long haul, the purpose and the interpretation of the law have been reduced to cause and effect. Do this, and this will happen. Do this, this will happen. Don't do this, and if you do, this will happen. You know, the, le the letter of the law was adhered to. Yeah, amazing. Jesus here is not condemning the command itself. Just bad interpretation of it. Now, there's a, there's a bizarre story coming out of uh, evangelicalism in the United States this last year. And it was like one of these ones that I don't really don't comment on these things, but it was just, it blew my mind. There was a megachurch pastor that uh, was accused of hiring a hitman to kill his son-in-law. Now, can you imagine Thanksgiving dinner after that one? Now, it wasn't just because it was his son-in-law. Like, I have a son-in-law now, and I... No, I can honestly say I've never hired or tried to hire a hitman. <laughs> Anger in the form of jealousy and rivalry ended up, ended up for one man giving another man money to take out his son. In Jesus' time, the sixth commandment of thou shalt not kill was reduced to cause and effect. 
don't do this, do this. Now, I live a block away from Value Village. <laughs> it's on Hastings. And I go there for two reasons. One is I like to find some really cool deals. The other is I really like to people watch. But every once in a while, if I find a really good deal on a shirt or a pair of pants, I go into the change room. And, and on, on, the, on the, the wall of the change room, there's this nice little sign that says, shoplifters will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. That's cause and effect, right? It says, if you steal, you're going to go to jail. And usually there's a big guy at the door that's going to throw you out. Now, Jesus contrasts this view by saying that the law and its effects are so much greater than you can imagine. So much greater than cause and effect. And this brings us to point number two. What does Jesus say? Verse 21. You have heard it said, it was, <coughs> excuse me. You have heard it said, the days of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That's like a Debbie Downer moment right there. This past week, as I stated, I had the real privilege of teaching an evangelism course. And one afternoon, I was talking to one of my former students. I'd, I'd taught there before, multiple times, and, and I was talking to the student. I'm like, well, what class are you taking? She says, oh, I'm taking the book of James. And I asked her, well, how's it going? And she said to me, she says, you know, my brain hurts and my heart hurts. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? So she said, today we had a discussion on temptation and sin. And I always thought, you know, that sin was just like my actions, my, my reaction, if I accepted or didn't accept to what was coming at me. So we were talking about this internal stuff in my heart and in my mind. And I used to console myself thinking, ah, that isn't, I don't have to worry about that. All I have to worry about is my actions. She says, but today I realized that I was just using that as an excuse to come to cover some of my internal stuff. And then she said to me this, if I sin in my heart and my mind, if that is true, then it radically changes how I'm to live in this world, doesn't it? I'm like, yep. See, this third year Bible school student, that day fully grasped the heart of what Jesus is saying in this text. In the dining hall on a Thursday afternoon, I preached the gospel to this young lady, telling her, in fact, that, yeah, actually, her sin on a heart level, she's, the sin is much more destructive and insidious than you can possibly imagine. God has given her the gift through this book of James to see herself as if the gospel didn't apply to her, and that's scary. She glimpsed the full state of her brokenness, and it rendered her heartbroken. She saw just how much she needed grace. So I left her with the truth that, yeah, actually, you're far much more worse than you think. But the good news is that God's love and his mercy is greater than you can ever imagine and hope for. And the hope of the gospel is we were accepted on the merit of Jesus. So whether we sin in our minds, we are rescued from the wrath of God that our sin demands. Jesus is saying to us this morning in this text that we are far worse we could possibly ever imagine or comprehend. And the sixth commandment here gives us a huge glimpse. It's like a spotlight or a beacon upon our lives in that. When we are angry, we exhibit at a heart level murder that is subject to judgment. Jesus doesn't just widen the nature and the source of the crime. 
but he also widens the ramifications of what murder is and means to him closer to us through the text again. You have heard it said, it was those the days of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Not only does Jesus widen the scope of the command and hinging it from direct, you know, cause and effect, but he ramps up the consequences for the crime. Killing is not just a physical reality, is it? We know that. Physical death is, not, is, is, is one part, but that's more than, it's not as much rather as what Jesus is actually getting at. And he says there's three things here. He says when we are angry, when we are insulting, and when we demean people with our grade, degrading talk, like using expressions of you fool, we are actively engaged in behavior that destroys others' reputations, status, value to society, emotional well-being. The result is that we might as well just kill them. Uh, that's hard for us to deal with in this world of cause and effect, isn't it? It hurts our brains. See, we learned last summer as we went through the book of Proverbs, in, in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, we learned that, this, that Solomon understood the heart of the law. And he said this, he said, There is, is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. In our anger, our words are as deadly as being impaled by a sword. That's graphic. When, people, when we use our words this way, we kill and destroy people's reputations and status and their emotions. You see, this was me. I had a guy, you know, make me look stupid in, you know, in front of my boss one day at work. And I went out of my way to destroy him. Backmouthed him, mean-talked him, made him look dumb every chance I could get. See, in our anger, we're liable to localized government problems. When, when we, you know, use insults, we're, it's like we're responsible to the Supreme Court. And if we demean somebody, if we actively demean somebody, we're liable to the fires of hell. I, don't, I can't tell you how many times I've broken that. Scholars debate on the progressive nature of this text and these examples. But I think no matter how you look at it, if you harbor anger in your heart, if you vocalize your anger towards others, if you actively work to, to destroy somebody else's reputation, the consequences are far greater than you can ever imagine. Your thoughts and your actions are you know, condemned to the fires of hell. That is hard. The consequences are greater than just physical death, but separation from God himself. So before we hurriedly rationalize our behavior and kind of say, well, what if this, or man, I'm justified in my anger here. Before we do that, I want everyone here this morning, hear me. I want everyone here this morning to think in your mind of that one difficult person. You know that one individual that sees, has that ugly knack of pushing your little red button on there? The one that, that rubs you the wrong way in every scenario that you possibly interact them with? The one that makes you feel stupid all the time? Now, I did a DNA test a while ago, and apparently I'm Scottish-Irish. I don't know, do I look Scottish-Irish? That doesn't matter, but what matters is to my shame. My friends used to tease me. And they, they used to say that I was like a stick of dynamite 
with an open flame sitting next to the fuse, ready to explode. See, all of us have that someone in our lives that we politely say that we find them hard to love. They are the open flame to our sort of dynamite. I don't think that I'm overstating this, and I, I don't think that, that, that I'm actually saying something more than what the text says, but if we've cursed under our breath about that person, or worse, we've actively badmouthed them to others, I think we're liable to the fires of hell, eternal punishment for our actions. Why? Because in our anger, Passively and actively, we have broken the first commandment to not kill. We are far worse than we can imagine. You have heard it said, was to those of days of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Man, this is a hard message for us. Because we falsely believe that we're good people. We're good people by nature. We don't do these things. This message is hard because we actively bury our heads in the sand and pretend that our anger doesn't apply to us, right? We don't want it to apply. Our righteous anger is good. We have been wronged. We need to be vindicated. We want to feel justified. Our anger towards others is a threat to our careers, a threat to our ambition, a threat to our status, and therefore I need to take, you know, revenge in my own hands. Our anger gives us the justice that we want. Unchecked anger, though, leads to revenge, which Jesus will deal with specifically in Matthew chapter 5, 38 to 42. But here in this text, Jesus leaves no room for justified anger, does he? He gives no room for anger, period. In a bout of my own anger, I read uh, an interesting book by a Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf. Um, and in another book, he, in a similar topic, uh, he's a Croatian theologian that, that developed a, a theory of you know, reconciliation and forgiveness in the context of the Bosnian-Serbian War. So he says this in his book, Free of Charge. We acknowledge deep human fury. Now, if you actually go back, the, the word for anger that the Greeks use here is, is literally, it's fury. It's, it's more than just, yeah, I'm angry with you. It's fury. We acknowledge deep human fury. At the same time, we affirm that retaliation born of that fury is clearly morally wrong. Revenge doesn't say an eye for an eye. It says, if you take my eye, I'll blow out your brains. It doesn't say an insult for an insult. It says, you cross me once, you cross me twice, and I'll destroy your character and your career doesn't say you organize an act of terror and we'll punish you. It says you organize an act of terror and we'll use the overwhelming military force of a superpower to recast the political landscape of an entire region from which you came. Revenge abandons the principle of measure for measure and acting out of injured pride and untamed fear gives itself to punitive excess. That's why revenge is morally wrong. I remember one time, we as a family, we were taking holidays in Greece. And we always took it in, you know, later in the, you know, September, October, because to travel anywhere in Greece in August is like insane. So every year on uh, October 28th, there's this day called Ohi Day. And it's basically meaning no day. 
It is the day in 1942 when the Greek government says no to the Nazi government. We will not be occupied by you. We're going to fight. Eh, a few days later, they were occupied. So in central Greece, on a way to looking at some archaeological site, we as a family stumble across a parade going on in the middle of nowhere. It's an abandoned ghost town. And we're like, okay, this is weird. We're going to check this out. You know, we're curious by nature. So we pull in and, and we ask the, uh, one of the guys at the back of the parade, like, what's going on? He says, ah, during World War II, we had a few of our men in our town create a little bit of an uprising against the Nazi occupation. They inadvertently killed a couple of, of, of their servicemen. They came back with tanks and absolutely destroyed a whole town. They killed indiscriminate men, women, and children. So there's a plaque sitting on a hill with a list of 1,500 names of people who died because of unbridled fury, punitive excess. Now, we don't have to just pick on the Nazis. This exists in our own hearts. Jesus, looking at the command to not murder, links it directly to anger. Because we know that our hearts, in our, our hearts, our default operating system is anger, unchecked revenge. We want justice for when we think we've been wrong. Now, when confronted with the scathing truth about us, if these implications of Jesus' teaching here are true, then my third year, another Bible school friend is right. If believed, it should radically alter how we live, how we act, how we speak to those around us, to those who have wronged us, to those that we have wronged. There is hope here, though. Jesus, in amping up the scope, the scale, and the repercussions of anger, doesn't just leave us stranded here. He doesn't give us, you know, a podcast with 10 tricks on how to control your anger to the best of your ability. He brings us our third point, the implications of reconciliation. So a question for us this morning, what does anger actually result in? What does anger actually result in in the context of our relationships? It causes brokenness. It causes division. It causes estrangement. Ultimately, it causes the death of the other. This is the logical finality of estrangement. How many times have you ever said, in anger, to somebody you were arguing with, says, you were dead to me? Yeah, how many times have we said that? Picture again that person that you had in your mind or fear that you have the most difficulty. What would it take if you, what would it take for that person to sit at your table at Christmas and enjoy turkey dinner with you? Now I realize that if broken estrangement is in the context of your family, that might very well have been your Christmas dinner. See, it would take more than an arm's distance. It would take more than a cessation of conflict. It would take reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation. An acknowledgement of hurt and brokenness. An active desire to make things right. To correct the root issues of brokenness. This is exactly where Jesus directs us here to the latter part of our text this morning. Because this diffuses any suggestion to say, my anger is vindicated and justified. No. We are to actively work on restoration. 
Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 26, says this. It says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, and before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're still going to him with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will put him in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out unless you've paid the last penny. The solution to estrangement, of unbrokenness, of anger, is reconciliation. Not justice. Reconciliation. Jesus presents us here with two scenarios. Two scenarios with which we have the opportunity to make things right. One is in the context of, weirdly enough, worship. Our anger is a barrier to worship. Second is in regards to our mediated justice and our relationships with those around us. Could be financial, could be friend, could be family. Ironically, both of the examples here assume that we are in the wrong. The one needing to initiate reconciliation. In the first example regarding worship, Jesus seems to indicate that horizontal reconciliation plays an important role in our relationship to God. If your relationship is broken to others, if you're unreconciled and angry, we need to seek out and to make amends before we can actually worship. We are to actively seek out restoration and reconciliation first, then come. Jesus seems to indicate here that the state of our relationships with one another matter to him. In the second scenario, uh, Jesus seems to indicate that the guilt is a foregone conclusion and that the last-ditch effort on the way to arbitration, we are to make amends, to plead, how can I make things right? Otherwise, <laughs> punishment is a foregone conclusion. We need to seek out restoration and reconciliation before it's too late. The antidote to anger, fury, and revenge, all that we've talked about, isn't just in punitive excess, but rather the pathway to forgiveness reconciliation, one in which we must take the first step. Now, I have a sister. She's three years younger than me, and I love my sister deeply. For many years, though, I didn't realize that my primary, you know, MO, modus operandi, was to show love to my sister by teasing her ruthlessly. And I loved her so much that I invited all my friends to tease her ruthlessly. I didn't think I did anything wrong. I love my sister. I always have. Then at some point, I realized that I was in her bad books. I'm kind of slow. And um, I'm like, what's wrong? And she unleashed upon me a fury of hatred and anger that quite frankly surprised me. Yeah, I'm thick. And I said to her, Charla, what can I do to make it right? What did it do? It took every time I saw her for years. Years. It took years to restore this relationship. But it took me not insulting her, bringing her down. It took me verbally building her up. But what if you guys can't go there? What if you are, are just broken too, too hard? What if you've been hurt and trust has been irreparably damaged? What do you do? What if the words and the anger have turned into violence? 
I talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago. His little kid was raped in a church. How do you deal with that? How does reconciliation occur or even start? How do you surrender your fury to God? Humanly speaking, Miroslav Volf in his book, Exclusive Embrace, at the front of it, he says, he's confronted. He's giving a lecture. He's just preached on reconciliation and forgiveness. And a guy at the back puts up his hand and says, what if a setnik asks for your forgiveness? In other words, the man who burned down entire villages, raped and pillaged your family. And what does he say? He says, I don't know, humanly possible? I'd like to think I can but I know through God I can. I know that I can forgive through God. So I don't find it a coincidence that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul picks up on the theme of reconciliation, and he, and he introduces us to a, a way of moving forward that Jesus started here. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now we could spend 10 weeks discussing the implications of this text. But in reality, in our own flesh... We can't forgive the ultimate other. We want retribution. The anger of, and our fury drives us to murderous thoughts. This text hits, it hits me hard. Like, I think I drew the short straw when I had to preach this one. See, I probably shared this story with you before, but I could not forgive my step-grandfather, the one who sexually abused and beat up my mom. I couldn't. I couldn't. hope this morning presented to us through this text is that we are the ultimate other. We are the person impossible to invite to Christmas dinner. We are the perpetrators of all kinds of evil. And as Paul says here, we are reconciled to God by Jesus. This blows my mind. Jesus left glory, came to us to be the sacrifice sufficient for our reconciliation. He goes, instead of going to the, from the altar, he, Jesus goes to the altar for us. Jesus sought us on the road and was punished. He took our punishment for sin. Jesus paid the ultimate price, the ultimate price of the other for us, because that's us. Jesus faced judgment for our anger. He was dragged before the counselor for our careless insults and he faced the fires of hell and freed us from the need to protect ourselves with insults and degrading words to others. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. We are made new by the work of Jesus on his behalf. And now we have a job to proclaim this ministry of reconciliation. The ministry that Jesus himself introduced us into in Matthew chapter 5. Here at Christ City, we have a dilemma before us today. We can believe that Jesus is saying to us about this morning, and, and, and th that we are far worse than we can possibly imagine. That when we were angry, we exhibited a heart-level murder and subject to judgment. We can humbly confess, yep, that's me. That's me. And walk in freedom, knowing that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And that he doesn't count your trespasses, your horrible words, your anger against you. And as a result, he trusts you with this same message of reconciliation, the very thing that you cannot have on your own. We can be like my Bible school friend and have our eyes open and confess that if this is true, if this is true, people, we can radically, we have to radically change how we act, live, and walk in this world. Or we can choose to wrap ourselves tighter in the sweater of our anger, consoling ourselves by the security that it brings. If you're there this morning, I get it. I understand. It does have a level of comfort, but I plead with you. I plead with you, surrender your need to justice to the God who actually can give it to you. But if you choose not to accept, I leave you with the story of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. There was an altar, and Cain wasn't happy because his sacrifice wasn't accepted, and he was furious. And God says to him, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do, do not be well. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. Let's roll over. God is saying, you must forgive. You must rid yourself of this anger. Otherwise, you will be eaten alive by your anger. Your sweater will turn into a straitjacket. And we know the story. Cain leaves the sacrifice, finds his brother in a field, and he dies. Abel dies. I implore you this morning, do not be like Cain. Please stand as we respond. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.